Cars on Call is a different car podcast. Two car guy physicians join noted automotive authority, Adams Hudson, to discuss car topics you won't find anywhere else. I'm Steve Schutz, and I've been publishing new car reviews for almost 30 years. Stefan Moran is a trauma surgeon who has published articles in the automotive safety literature and operated on countless car crash victims. And Adams Hudson is a now-retired successful businessman who has bought, sold, and owned over a hundred top-shelf enthusiast cars. Welcome to Cars on Call. Welcome to Cars on Call. I am Steve Schutz, and uh, weirdly, I am here with Stefan Moran, trauma surgeon Stefan Moran. He was in Europe serving our country, and now he's here with me, Sun Valley, Idaho, to ski. He just got in. Stefan, welcome back from Europe. How was Europe? I had a great time. Ellen went with me. We flew into Frankfurt, rented a car. Much to my chagrin, I kind of got nipped down low. The speed limit in the Audubon was unlimited. And my wife kept looking at the speedometer, pulled out her phone, calculated what kilometers to miles were, and said, you will not go faster than 142 kilometers per hour. And she'd calculated to be 83 or 84 or something. And that hit the, so it's pretty cool. You're going on the Audubon and they have the speed limit signs. Most intersections, they drop you down to 90 kilometers an hour. Then it goes to 130 kilometers an hour. And then you'll get to a sign that just has three black stripes through the center, which means it's unlimited. And, you know, of course, I always rented a um, Volkswagen T-Rock or I-Cross or something, some SUV thing that they have. You know, I wanted to top it off, you know, see how fast it would go, but she would have none of that. So I was a little bit emasculated. Um, <laughs> I tried really hard when she wasn't watching to creep it on up. We, um, could, we could all relate. Adams, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing you're, terrific. You're not emasculated, right? Uh, no, not, not at the moment, but, you know. <laughs> never happened to you, I imagine. <laughs> Well, you know, I, 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 every now and then it does happen. But, you know, Steph, if you were doing 83 miles an hour, or does that mean you were in the far right lane with the hazard zone? Yes. And then I, one time I went to pass a truck and I thought I had plenty of time. And it must have been a Volkswagen Golf R, a little bit slammed. And he probably passed me at about 130 miles an hour. And so you think about it, you're doing 70, 80 on the Audubon. You get passed by somebody doing 120. That's a 50 mile per hour differential. So, well, you know, you you learn to look in your left mirror and you see the guys with the lights coming on. And, you know, we're not used to people having closing differential speeds like that. And I thought, oh, I got time to pass. Well, hell no, I didn't have time to pass. And he hit the horns, flashing his lights at me. You know, first thing, you dumbass American in a rental car. But it's a whole new experience driving on the Audubon with that unlimited mileage we, uh, little we, did he know you were the safety expert in in that regard little did he know who he just flew by you were respectful i'm sure of the rules and honestly it just it sounds like and i kind of wish that every american could do it at least a simulated driving experience of how they handle the autobahn driving in germany or the autostrada in italy just to see what it's like and living in the, you know, everybody knows my pet peeve is people who just camp out in the left lane, completely oblivious to the traffic around them. You cannot do that in those conditions. 
Absolutely not. You know, and Steve was laughing at me, but I think when he bought his Porsche and took in the Audubon, the person in the right seat who may have been his wife did not let him top end his 911 either. Mm -hmm. No, I never had. I did not take a European delivery of my 911. It was E92. Oh, that's right. M3, my, my V8 M3. And uh, I was okay with it because they that engine and that generation of engines, they tell you uh, when you pick up your car, you have to be very, very strict about the break-in. It's a I very, would think so. yeah. yeah, they don't, they, they said, do not go over whatever the RPM was. I think it was like 3000 in the first 5,000 miles. Uh, they were really strict about it. So anyway, welcome like? back, Stefan uh, Adams. We missed him when we were interviewing the great Dick Barber. That was quite the experience. It was quite the experience still lives fondly in my memory. And yeah, we, 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 we hate to keep rubbing Steph's nose and not having been there, but it was terrific. And I would just go ahead and say to the listeners, there will be a follow-up. Absolutely. Excellent. Yeah. Not immediately, but we're going to have a follow-up, which is going to be great. He was a great guest. Hey, uh, before we get into well, there's a lot of meat today, but before we get into it, guys, I read something that was a great line. And I have said, when I wrote up this particular vehicle, I said something like it, not nearly as artfully. And somebody said, am I the only one that thinks that the Ford Bronco Sport is a Ford Escape with an Otterbox on it? <laughs> that's pretty funny he is more accurate than calling it a bronco that's for sure it's the same platform it it's is the same the engine same, same transmission very... it's basically the same car but i cannot see a ford bronco sport the same anymore well i, th I think the word emasculated has come up a time or two and that is <laughs> that is certainly what happened to the sport i mean that nut sack has left the house <laughs> <laughs> it's moaning in the front yard. <laughs> well, that's what happens. When we all get married anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That car, I, 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 we've said it before on, on this podcast that the, the Bronco sport name is half deceptive. Let's just go ahead and, and throw that out there. People think they're getting a Ford Bronco and they're getting an escape <laughs> with, with the otter box on the back. It's, it's not even a, you know, you see, you see kids and they're in a blended family. They're half, they're half siblings. <laughs> this isn't even a half sibling. This is, this is someone that lives on the same street, but it's a different house. It's a different family. It doesn't belong in the, in the Bronco family. They shouldn't have called it that, but of course I under it's, it's marketing, right? Adams. Well, I'm afraid so. I guess the Bronco sport wants to identify as a Ford Bronco. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Hey, just, you know, they did add mock E to the Mustang. So, you know, they, they took True. that name and kind of Rub, rubbed it in the ground. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, hats off to whoever came up with that analogy. I thought it was really, really great. Uh, before we get to car stuff, uh, we need to mark a uh, landmark album. And I noted with interest that Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon turned 50 on March 1st, 2023. So a couple of weeks ago, it was launched exactly March 1st, 1973. It was Pink Floyd's eighth studio album. And as anyone who, and of course, all three of us, as we know, it's a concept album that focused on the pressures of modern life, including conflict, greed, time, death, and mental illness. It had and has over 45 million sales. It continues to sell well. It was on the Billboard Top 200 album list for 19 years. 
And interestingly, prior to Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd had never never gone gold. In other words, they'd never sold more than 500,000 albums uh, of any of their albums, copies of any of their albums. And here, Dark Side of the Moon goes multi, 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 multi platinum. I grew up listening to this album, and I probably have heard it, I can't even count, hundreds of times. And got to give credit to Alan Parsons, who engineered this mm-hmm. album. And for you younger listeners, I know you've heard Dark Side of the Moon, but think about it. There were no computers when this album was generated. Okay. This was all by looping in the studio. And I can't tell you a number of times I've sat and listened to Claire Torrey sing the great gig in the sky. And every, to this day, when I hear her do her wailing, um, which is kind of an honor, Sid Barrett and the death, I get goosebumps to this day. Every time I hear that song, yeah, 14 time platinum today. It's still the 11th best selling album in all history. And just yeah, what a great anniversary and an amazing album, especially for us gray haired older guys. It, there's we all have memories, Adams. I know you probably have to have a memory surrounding this album as well. I totally do. We all do. You know, and, and I, I, I was referencing prior to the podcast that I remember where I was when I heard that. And, I, you know, I was not the world's biggest music follower, but when I heard uh, money off of that album the first time, which got incredible airplay. And, you know, sometimes those songs get worn out because of too much airplay. However, that song, that song, that album is just timeless. And and it's we can hardly have this discussion without referencing the incredible graphic design of the album cover, which I still see on T-shirts to this day among the young people. Uh, George Hardy did the artwork of the phenomenal prism breaking up the light and it was just so brainy and esoteric and beautiful and simple and it just really sort of captured that album yeah if you go to my instagram i marked the day on march 1st and instead of putting a picture of the album i put a picture of a van a 70s van with uh that was black and the the exterior the entire van was dark side of the moon album cover which i thought was very clever and very cool uh what a van to have Absolutely. And I, I, I'm with you, Stefan, to, to hear her sing that wailing. It's like somewhere between a, a funeral march and an eroticism sort of yell and Clara story solo singing uh, something from a play. You don't even know what it's from, but it's beautiful and it's mysterious. And I, I do believe timeless, like a lot of the cars we talk about. I think that music fits in perfectly in that era. It's my favorite album by far. Absolutely love it. I know we all love it. And uh, by the way, a little bit of car trivia. Nick Mason, who's their drummer, used money from Dark Side of the Moon to buy quite a car. And Stefan loves talking about this car. I let him introduce it. But Nick Mason bought a hell of a car with money from Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, listeners, you probably heard me talk about that. I love two-door coupes. And my favorite of all time is a 62 Ferrari GTO. And I just think it is the absolute perfect balance of a car design, two doors, hard top. I like convertibles, but I really like two door coupes better. So in 1977, Nick Mason, with the money off of that album, they finally hit it big. He paid $37,000 for a GTO in 1977. And that is. Is it worth, it's worth, I think, 38000 now, right? <laughs> I'll go 40. I'll give 40. So, yeah. So today, listeners, that's about $205,000 in today's money. So he paid, he paid big bucks back then. 
But that car today, what do you think realistically, Adams? Uh, I'm going to hit mid- 70. Uh, I yeah. don't know. I, I would I would think 30, 35 to 50 million, somewhere in that zone. I disagree. And Adams, I hate to, I hate to argue with you about this, but I. Uh, we're going we're going to throw it down right now. <laughs> no, here's why. There was a silver 63 GTO that sold to uh Dave McNelly who McNeil who is the mm-hmm. uh the you know the mat guy. He does uh weather tech. We all have our his mats in our cars. Right. And he this was about 5 years ago. He paid 70 million for that silver one. So if he paid 70 in the uh the, you know with the Mercedes we talked about the SLR sold for 140, don't you think that Nick Mason's uh, GTO, which would have extra provenance because of him, would be more than seventy. I don't know. What do you? I mean, what do you think? I was trying to get it for a deal, and now you've blown <laughs> it. You've blown the whole thing. No, I I do not disagree. His provenance, the the, the pedigree that goes with that, is probably worth a small fortune. And you know, if, uh, for the listeners who did not catch the tie-in, he was the drummer uh, for Pink Floyd. And goodness gracious, alive, he has certainly parlayed his fortunes from that into an automotive wonderland. Great car, great car, and and, and great purchase by him. And he still remains sort of a figure at car events. You know, the guy is still very relevant in and around the car circles. Yeah, so Nick Mason is so cool. Steve-O gave me a book for my birthday or Christmas a couple years ago. And it's a book that has all of Nick Mason's cars in his collection. But the coolest thing was it comes with a CD where he has recorded audio of the engines and exhaust notes on all of his cars. And I mentioned it in one of our previous podcasts when I went to the Mercedes Museum, that when you're finally done seeing all the cars at the museum, you come out the back hallway and you stand there and Nick Mason helped design the audio. So the cars are coming screaming down the track from your left to right. And it is an amazing experience. And he is so highly revered in the classic car collection racing audio he's just he is now the consummate car guy and he was the drummer for pink floyd that's just two two coolest things in the whole world let me add something and get your take on this because i think it's right google uh, apparently interviews people that they find interesting and they put it up on the internet so if you go to youtube you can search for google nick mason and nick mason was asked in that interview why do you think not only has Pink has Dark Side of the Moon sold so many copies, but why do you think it's been so enduring? And he said something I thought was very insightful. He said it was written by a 20-something, but the lyrics are much more relevant for someone in their 50s and 60s. I have not read that. I have to agree completely. But you know, all the problems, you know, n- not the problems, but but the 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 concerns and sort of the thematic line of that album, which is fear and anxiety and madness and questioning and, you know, the, the, the song time, it's about, you know, are you wasting time? That is pretty well a, excuse me, timeless question to ask. And I do believe it, it, it plays to almost every generation. You, you guys are making me want to listen to it again tonight. And I look forward to it. We probably will too. Well, we have to move on from Pink Floyd, but before we do, uh, I'll just read a couple lines from the, the song time, which is, not only one of my, it is my favorite song on on that album, but it has one of the best guitar solos I've ever heard. Uh, everyone talks about Comfortably Numb. I think that the guitar solo on Time is better. But very quickly, to your point, Adams, speaking about Time, it goes, tired of lying in the sunshine, staying home to watch the rain. 
And there is time to kill today. And then one day you find 10 years have got behind you. No one told you when to run. You missed the starting gun. Promise you, I just got chills. You rereading that, and I'm not exaggerating. Yep, that is a fabulous I, cut. I'm with the Adams. I just I got chills as well, and it brings back the song. And geez, what an amazing album! All right, well, back to Earth. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and uh, there's some news that I thought was a little sad. It is, to my mind, not at all surprising. The Wall Street Journal, actually Automotive News reported that Nissan had their credit rating dropped to junk, uh, according to S&P Global Ratings. Imagine that. (laughs) Nissan's Nissan's, uh, credit rating is now in the junk area. And they cited, this is S&P Global Ratings, cited lack of of innovation and few new products in the pipeline. Uh, Stefan, does that surprise you? I know you just said no, but tell us why. (laughs) Nissan, um, ever since Gome got carried away in a violin case back to Lebanon, <laughs> they've gone like they've gone like terribly downhill. And it's like, I don't even give a shit about Nissan anymore. We talked about the GTR, what, 14 sales in the US or something. And I guess like, yeah, you know, I know the Quash Koi, whatever that car is they sell over and it's like the number one selling SUV in Quash Kai, yeah. Quash Kai. And I saw them over there. I'm like, yeah, it's just another SUV, but I guess first the market share they kept a lot, but it's like, yeah, the Nissan Maxima was like one of the cool cars to have back in like 1985, 86. The Z just kind of died and went away. And it's like, I don't know. I just, Nissan just, I mean, like who gives a shit about Nissan anymore? I mean, I think I agree. They're, it's a, they're just, they have, there's nothing left with them. Adams, do you give a shit? <laughs> Uh, I, I, I vote firmly in the do not give a shit category. Um, <laughs> I think Nissan is actually comfortably numb. They, <laughs> oh, very, very good. They they innovate nothing. But let's go back a little, a tiny bit to the heyday. And I know that we need to keep this show moving because of, of the depth of what we have to cover. But, you know, Nissan did innovate for a while. And Maxima was a super cool car. It was like a BMW 3 Series at a little bit less money, sort of an in-your-face Japanese version. The Q motor technology, the V6 that was in a lot of their product line, was voted one of the best engine designs ever. You know, multiple years in a row. But but they're just they're just yawners as far as that goes. And you know, it's no longer an aspirational vehicle. I mean, I was I actually had to go to their website to even look up what they make nowadays. And they have a, you know, they so have. Well, and we're car guys and we're fans and we follow this stuff. We read nameplates of automobiles that we see on the road or in parking lots and stuff. They have seven different SUVs. Um, It starts off on the bottom end. I won't go through all of them with something called a Nissan Kicks, which no one has ever heard of. But (laughs) it's a a relatively super efficient car, you know, kind of at the uh, bottom end. They have, what, four... Different uh, sedan versions of cars. They have the Versa, the Sentra, the Altima, the Maxima, and basically, I think we're suggesting here that they add the Enema. <laughs> <laughs> and just go ahead and clean up. <laughs> oh, that is funny, Adams. We Folks, have- Nissan, you just need to energize your public. Like, let there be a flagship waving car, a halo car, whatever it is, something that sort of says 
that you stand for your own brand. Um, but I don't see it right now. We have we have talked about the death. Uh, the, the maxim is being discontinued uh, later on this year. We've talked about that, and it's a shame because it, you know it's uh, arguably me, me the only interesting car they have, and it's a shame. Uh, I was uh, I, I I'm going to go on and search for the enema. But anyway, <laughs> um, but seriously, I mean, 240Z, even the two, the, 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 the Nissan SER, the, you know, the Sentra SER was a fun car. The, the BT10. We talked about the B210 wasn't bad, but the 240Z was great. Yeah. And, and the ZX they had in the nineties was really, really great. They've had some really, really good cars. It's, and it's the, a shame. And now uh, again, Stefan, you went to the website too. It's like, Give me a break. Yes, I went to the website. I was so bored on the Nissan website. I went to the Infinity website. I gave even more bored. There was some, I had some like one life to live or some crazy, stupid logo that disappeared with some woman that had a postcoital glare on her face. That, <laughs> what? <laughs> she was, it was like the craziest picture I've ever seen. It's like <laughs> this woman just kind of like looking sideways up. It's like one life to live or a life. I'm like, it's like she had this postcoital glare on her face. I'm like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. It's like, and then I looked at the car listings and I'm like, S everything starts with a Q. And it's like, I, I'm like, I'm just like, man, it's like, I mean, they've just lost, they've completely lost their way. They have kind of lost their way. And it's sad. You see companies do this. And I, I, I don't want to bang on anybody else and deter the, uh, divert the conversation. But, you know, Volvo went from being sort of an established safety brand. And then in the 90s, post Ford, they sort of lost their way and they were looking for identity. Saab never got their identity back. You see cars do this where they just meander into vanilladom and they don't ever get back. And we are seeing Nissan do that. Uh, shockingly, their sales are up. This just shows how bad they're down. They're, they're up like 30% for the year, but that just means they were so far in the doldrums in, in Q4 of 22. And hopefully the junk rating of their credit will get someone's attention at the top to do some serious changing because it's a, it's, it's, it's a lauded and valued brand. Yeah, it really is. And, uh, it's a shame. Wow. It's, it's really a bummer. So Hey, let's move on. Adam's uh, car spotting. You had something cool. Talk about it. No, I hadn't seen anything. No. Besides <laughs> what's coming in your garage. As a matter of fact, I did spot a car, uh, but I'd spotted it uh, previously. And I thought, what a neat design. And that is the oddball kind of different for this product, different for this brand. Honda S2000. I don't think it's oddball at all, Adam's. Um, that S2000, everybody loves or has ridden at some point in their life in a two-door convertible. And Honda decided to make one. And they took a little different track on their version of a two-door sports car. I'll let you talk more about it. But no, I, I wouldn't call it odd, but I think it was right in line that everybody loves a two-door convertible. I love that car. Tell us more about it. Man, I, I love that you guys love it. I wasn't sure what the reaction would be. But um, anyway, I'd seen a few out on the road. And, and, and I've mentioned before, we live in a beach town. And so it's a relatively low speed limit. There's, you know, there's not a lot of curvy roads. And and Florida has yet to invent the hill. So <laughs> there's basically no elevation change, you know, for really carbon approach. However, a small car that's easy to park is a great thing. 
And I started looking at S2000s and, you know, there's a huge uh, enthusiastic base of supporters of the car. That's a decent aftermarket. Not that I want to jazz one up, but there's a lot of enthusiastic parts builders out there. And there's a wonderful forum, uh, S2K forum, free plug there. And I, I just started looking and I, I focused in on the AP2 and for the non S2000 People out there, they made the car basically from uh, 2000, the, the model year 2000, hence the name, up to about uh, 2008, 2009. The AP1, they call it, from 2001 to 2003 was a super high revving, and that was part of its criticism. It developed its power way too high uh, for the normal person to use in traffic. And then the AP2, which was a little bit bigger motor, uh, slightly lower torque peak at rpm so an easier to drive car to translate that and i focused in on the, on the ap2 and ended up with an 06 in uh suzuka blue i'm nice. a, a blue fan and you can't go wrong with the name suzuka one of the greatest racetracks in the world and it's a fun fun car and yeah you can wind it to the moon i think it's about an 8,000 rpm redline and it's like driving a four-wheel motorcycle. I don't know what else to say. It's just a, it's a zippy little car. It's a little tight in its accommodations inside, but you know, it's a two-seat convertible, like Steph said. And I think it's designed piece by piece is way prettier than what photos indicate. Yeah, I think it's a good looking car. I've I've drove I've driven both AP1 and AP2. I didn't think it was that much of a different driving experience, to be honest. Both of them are really dogs low down. If you don't get up around uh, four or 5,000 RPMs, you are going slow. And then all of a sudden, you know, the old, uh, as the 90s kids used to say, VTEC kicked in, yo. So once that, <laughs> once the, once you're saying, once the VTEC kick, VTEC kicks in, yo, then all of a sudden, uh, you know, for the fast and furious crowd, uh, it's party time. It is part of it. <laughs> and I have been living a little bit in the yo of that, you know, I've, it, it, you, you have to have it wound up, but that's kind of, that's part of the fun too. You don't feel like you're going to break anything. I'm going to make a prediction here, Adams. Two of my big car buddies, uh, Darren Johnson and Joel Pickett, Joel Pickett's the guy who's had the GT and Darren's a huge BMW fan. They both owned S2000s. And they just grew tired of having to wind that thing out to yeah. 5,000, 6,000 RPMs before they could have fun with it. So they loved the looks, they loved the drive, but they got tired of running around town in second gear, third gear, screaming at 6,000 RPMs. And I'm going to make a prediction here. I know you've had 150 cars. I'm going to give you, all right, over under nine months with that car. Wow. Okay. Well, we will see how that plays out. I agree. I I think you're going to get tired of it. Uh, I I almost got tired of it after I had it for a week. It was a press car, and I did like it. But oh my gosh, if you're not up in the revs, it's it's kind of dull. Well, you guys are not doing me any good. I, <laughs> That's I what buddies are for. I was going to trade the 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 Honda to Nick Mason for the GTO and you guys have just flattened <laughs> both of those options. It, but I have to say it does look good. I really, I love, I think it's maybe it's certainly top five cars to shift as far as the feel of the shift of the feel of the clutch and how, how the, the shifter and the transmission matches with the engine. It's top five for me. Absolutely love that. 
Bingo. I, you can quite literally, I mean, sometimes you hear this said and, you know, it takes a visual to sort of like demonstrate it, but you can have your hand resting on the console. In other words, elbow at 90 degrees, hand on the shift rod, not the knob and shift through all six gears without moving your arm. It yeah, is it's like a, it's um, switch, Swiss precision. Uh, it's it's really an amazing car and it does stick like glue. Uh, I will say it's a little buzzy at speed. So tomorrow I am removing the rest of the interior. Uh, I've taken out part of it and putting sound insulation in the doors and on the floors and stuff like that, just because I'm a little OCD, but um, I'm enjoying it. I'm having fun with it. I understand your guys, maybe not criticisms, but sort of like negative things to watch for so far. So good. I'm still in the romance stage. I don't have the post coital glare. <laughs> but we're just, working on it. Well, you know, Adams, I've known you for a long time and I haven't figured out the correct term. It's not Adams application, Adamsization, but you're going to take this car, you're going to tear it apart, you're going to detail it to the hundredth degree, and you're going to flip this thing because when somebody looks at it and sees that it's one of your cars, they're going to know it's perfectly worked out. It's going to be better than showroom quality, and they're going to be happy with it. And you'll be glad that you had it for nine months. You enjoyed it, but you got tired of hearing wee, 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 you know, <laughs> 6,000, 9,000 RPMs just all the time. Well, when you when you go from post-coital to post-enema, <laughs> you know it's time to sell. <laughs> uh, so, uh, all right. Yeah, keep Thank us you for your positive comments, Steph. Keep us posted. So moving on, we have um, uh, we're going to do some electric vehicle BEV talk here, and we're going to start with uh, a conversation that's going to make uh, Stefan's brother Eric happy, <laughs> and then we're going to end with something that's going to make him unhappy. So let's start with the happy part, Stefan. Uh, I was reading in automotive news that Volkswagen Group is quietly throttling back on their prediction of when they're going to go all BEV and also a lot of their tech. They've had a lot of problems ramping up with both BEV battery and a lot of their software. But in all of that kind of difficulty, they're doing a couple of things to make BEVs more fun. And one of them, of course, we all know the ID Buzz is a very interesting, I, I would say very good looking modernization of the Volkswagen Microbus from the 60s. They did a really good job. I think the ID Buzz looks good. Interestingly, they said they want to release a BEV all-electric version of the Carmen Ghia. Adams, you ever have a Carmen Ghia? Never had a Carmen Ghia, but uh, thank you for thinking of me in that question. No. <laughs> you know, Ghia is a wonderful styling house, but the Carmen Ghia just never did it for me. Really? I, I always... Thought the Carmen Ghia was kind of cool, small. I don't know if I'd ever, I don't think I'd ever own one, but I kind of liked it at the time. I always liked the design. I, you know, it's obviously not a performance car. This is, you know, you've talked about secretary cars, Stefan. The Carmen Ghia back in the day was a secretary. That was not a sports car. It just was kind of a cooler looking Volkswagen bug, I think. You know, and now that I look at them, I, I do see, you know, it's funny how design tastes change over time. What I originally thought was sort of a goofy looking design of the Carmen, I will give it credit that it's a very tight looking design and something about the greenhouse, the greenhouse of that car from the ABC pillars, very thin, very delicate, very well executed. And I sort of get it. I wouldn't mind one with the juiced up motor. I think that might be kind of fun to sport around in. 
But as a, as an EV, you know, uh, who knows what the design group is going to come up with, and Volkswagen knows how to draw cars. Well, uh, it'd be interesting to uh, have our former guest uh, Andrew Clark put one of his Porsche type engines into a Carmen Ghia. That would be something. That would be worth having, certainly. All right, so I had a, a little bit of a challenge for you guys, and I thought, okay. I think it's a good idea for Volkswagen to do a Carmen Ghia. I think it would give some some energy, some positive energy to uh, the BEV space. It would kind of juice sales a little bit. I, I would like it. And I thought, okay, Volkswagen Group has a lot of brands. What car from the past would be interesting to make a BEV updated design version of? And Adam, I'll start with you. What do you think? You know that that's a it's a you you have this knack of coming up with these very unique sort of combinations of ideas. You know, thing this plus this equals a third more interesting thing. And to me, the one that jumped out and oddball choice, perhaps, but a Porsche nine fourteen. That car was a marvel of packaging in its day. People give the Boxster all the credit for saving the company, and they certainly did. But you know, you've got a front trunk and a rear trunk and a mid engine and a very tight little cockpit, and it handles like a go-kart. I would love to have one of those just to flit around in as a, as a BEV. Well, Adams, you had one of the sweetest 914 sixes with the six-cylinder um, that you sold, and I'm surprised you sold that car because by the time you had it all done and sorted, I mean, that was a sweet, sweet ride. Remember, my thing is to overdo it and then sell it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that, that's my model. Is to yeah, not talk about that was the, the Dick Barber car. Uh, indeed, it was. It sure was. Yeah, it was a Dick Barber connection car. But that is a, a fun car to drive. And anybody who's ever sort of heard one lumber past and maybe with its not very good exhaust note, you know, thank you, VW, for the way that exhaust sounds. But if you put an electric motor in it and you could quote a, sort of whiz through and enjoy the way it was silently gliding along that is a fantastic package it just really yeah, is especially if you put like a 120 mile or 100 mile battery pack in it so keep it light you know you don't need a 300 mile range in that that's just going to be something to go out and have a blast in so maybe a 150 175 mile per hour pack mile pack and that'd be that'd be really cool I think you're right on it because who wants to take a 300 mile trip in one? Beautiful. I, I think it's a great idea. And I think a, an updated 914, we've seen a lot of cars updated, but we have never seen an updated 914. I think it would look great. Uh, Stefan, what do you, what's your, what's your pick for a Volkswagen group BEV updated from the past? So for me, you know, and I know I'm boring here, but it's going to be another Bentley continental T-door. And the reason I say that is, you know, if you get the big W engine in it, they got to freaking drop the motor out to even change anything. So think about it. You take the Bentley, which is super tight packaging, pull out the V8, pull out the W16, put a, something that doesn't need service, and then you've got the quiet and comfort of electric, but then it just will freaking haul ass balls to the wall. Um, so for me, a Bentley Continental Super Sports electric be probably really the ultimate packaging. I don't know where the hell they put the batteries in the thing, but to me, that would be just awesome. That that would be a, that's a long distance cruiser. So it'd have to have a big battery. Yeah, I would, you know, I think if it had a 300 mile per hour, 300 mile battery pack in it, that'd be cool. And I could live with that, but it would be the quiet and the comfort because 
you know, I like GTs. I like to get on the interstate and just cruise in comfort with the ball coolers on, nice stereo, quiet. But then when you get to a stoplight, I want to slam on the accelerator, zero to 60 in three seconds. And I think an electric version of the Bentley would do that. And you wouldn't have to worry about maintenance on a Bentley. Which would be a first in and of itself. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. You know, Steph, we've talked on some of your safety talks about the incredibly heavy, uh, like Rivian trucks, which we, we we may actually touch on later in this podcast. But the since the dry weight of a Bentley, even minus its engine, would still weigh roughly what a three-story building weighs. Oh, what, what do we think a BEV Bentley would weigh? I mean, honestly, just like like throw a number out. I'm coming up with like 8,000 pounds, maybe more. I don't know. I was going to say 8,500. Yeah, because it'd be a long-distance cruiser. It would be, yep. you'd be you know, close to the Hummer. You'd be cutting, cutting grooves in the asphalt as it rolls. <laughs> but not with those 22s by 10s, you know. That's you, baby. <laughs> All right, All right um, Steve, my, you're my, up, uh, man. I have two Audis. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't. You only get one. I know. I couldn't decide. Between well, you just decide. All right, I'm going to decide. What uh, happened to the rules, Stefan? Goodness gracious. All right, I'm going to X out the uh, Gen 1 Audi TT Coupe. I'm going to say, no, I don't want that, even though I kind of do. Uh, and I'm going to go with the first generation Audi UR, which is German for first gen, I guess. Quattro Coupe, the uh, the original back from the early 80s, the rally car, uh, yeah. the road car with four-wheel drive that introduced luxury vehicle all-wheel drive, which is now completely ubiquitous and has taken over the whole market. But I like the design of that. And for me, you could you can make it a little bit, you know, update it, modernize it. That's my choice. I love the design too. You know, when you're describing that car with the punched out fenders and just the way it looks sort of hunkered down, it looked business, but it didn't like overstate its mission. I think that's a wonderful pick. And I was just pulled up the Audi Quattro and, and they pull, I pulled up a concept. I don't know what year. It looks gorgeous. And I think to take that Audi Quattro concept, put electric in there. So it's a, they call it the 2023 Audi Quattro. That in a BEV, absolutely. I think it's an iconic design. It's a hatchback. The first to market with the um, all-wheel drive. I think that is a, fat, a great transition. I think it would sell well. And I think, yeah, I'd be all about that. I mean, that um, Sport Quattro concept is cool. And I think great choice. I actually think that thing would sell right now. I'm not so sure mine and Steph's would, and I'm not putting a stand. I'm saying like for our own entertainment purposes, what we chose is what we would like in our driveway. But I, Steve, I think your choice would be a commercially viable option for them. I agree. Well, that's a good segue because uh, we're about to talk about commercial viability of BEVs. And surprisingly, and you know, we have been, I would say, ahead of the curve on this. And it's not that we're Neanderthals or Luddites. It's just that uh, there are some bumps in the road that are predictable, and we predicted them. And now it's like the the rest of the world is starting to catch up with the Wall Street Journal. I had an article saying, hey, we've got some, some challenges for the BEV world and for BEV sales. I mean, everyone's thinking we're going to be 100% new car sales in 2035 are going to be electric. And a lot of people are saying not so fast, including 
Surprisingly, the Wall Street Journal, Rivian and Lucid continue to struggle. That was what the article was about. Cash burn, especially for Rivian and disappointing sales, especially for Lucid. Rivian has also had production problems. Uh, we don't know. We, we know they're not making the sales that they projected. And Lucid, of course, uh, is the same thing. Lucid, surprisingly, has had decent production, but their sales, their sales have been uh, uh, disappointing. Uh, Stefan, your brother's a big enthusiast. He's going to be bummed out to hear this. What what do you what do you think about all that? Well, I think you know the media and the world is finally catching up to the reality. And you and I, you know, Steve O and I are scientists. Adam's a realist who's bought and sold 150 cars. If you look at the electric vehicles, let's talk about the reality of where does the battery materials come from? Okay, you've got You've got people mining the shit by hand. You got kids doing it. They can't keep up with the battery technology or electric grid is not ready for it. Think about it. If a Ford dealership wants to go EV, they're going to spend over a million dollars. So my Ford dealership in Jasper, Alabama has got to spend a million dollars to bring in electrical wire that can power a small hospital to support two fast charging and a third slow charging facility. So and that's that's by the way, it's not hyperbole, right? I mean, uh, it's been reported that it's it takes that much electricity. And you know, think about it, people in California that have electric vehicles have to charge them at night. They can't even charge them in the day because the grid can't support it. So, you know, we've talked about this from the beginning that yes, there is a role for electric vehicles. It's great. I think the battery technology is one generation behind where we need to be. There is a perfect place for a car that's electric if you live in the right environment and city. There are luxury purposes. You know, this is using child labor around the world to mine these. It's not the panacea. It's not the third coming. It's not what everybody thought. And now that the hot air and hype is gone, people are starting to wake up and realize, yep, you know, they're not the savior that we all thought they were. I am fully uh, in agreement with that and what Steph's referring to as far as the child labor and where it comes from. We're referring specifically to the Congo. And if you want to pull up any photos of people trying to mine the cobalt, uh, which is found in very few places in the world, I promise you it will look like the reenactment of a movie about scavenging. Uh, but it is right now at this time. And it's that, that that's a very sad component of the production of, you know, all this wonderful bleeding heart liberalism that says, you know, EVs are going to be wonderful for the, for the world. There's going to be nothing but rainbows. You know, it's all recyclable. It's all uh, uh, renewable energy sources. Well, let's just look at where that energy comes from. And that is one huge, huge problem. But back to the huge commercial side that, that Steve was talking about. I mean, VW's throttling back on, on its production and they're not doing it because they're not an incredibly powerful global organization. Uh, they're doing it for, you know, justifiable business reasons. There's a difficulty in the producing of, of the battery in the car. There's difficulty in the power grid. There's difficulty in accessible charging. There's difficulty in the battery production, Stefan alluded to, and there's difficulty in the length of time to charge your dang vehicle. To summarize the Wall Street Journal article, and this is really what it comes down to, there are problems on the supply side which is producing the vehicles. And then I would say, surprisingly, there's problems on the demand side. Uh, Lucid CEO Peter Rawlinson last, uh, said, uh, quote, last year our focus was on production bottlenecks. Now in terms of sales, that's my focus right now. Uh, it's the old thing about the dogs not eating the dog food. 
not enough dogs are eating this dog food. Uh, it's it's supply side and it's demand side. And yeah, let's not only forget this is a luxury item. Well, I was going to yeah. talk about that. You know, if you if you look at here's what a regular person does, and you know, we are not regular people because we're you know up we're, we're in business and medicine, so we do have more money than the average person. But the average uh, annual income for a household is in the fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollar range. And this is what happens. And I have many employees, and this is what their life is. They've got a CRV. It's about eight years old. And uh, finally, when it's eight or nine years old, they say, I'm going to get a new CRV to go to Honda dealer, take out a hello, seven year loan. And then they uh, run that car and they take trips in it and they use it for everything for, you know, eight to 10 years or so. Let's not forget that the average car on the road in the United States now is 11 years old. So this, this is the reality. So they, they buy a new CRV, they run it for about seven, eight, nine years. Imagine if you say, okay, in addition to this seven year note, you also have to take a loan out, no no joke, take a loan out for your charger in your garage. A charger in your garage is like three, four or $5,000. need a separate loan for that. That doesn't seem realistic to me. It, it, the economics of this really do not balance out. And to use a very aged phrase for which there's probably a very clever modern version of it, but this is the cart before the horse if there ever was one. Uh, the, the, the entire world is like, oh, we cannot wait for EVs to come. And certain manufacturers have announced that they're going to go fully EV by 25 or 26 or 28 or whenever it is. And look out world because the world is not ready. And, you know, I, 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 I saw something online recently. I mean, Steve, I think he was the source of it that you sent it. The guy is on Instagram. He spends 41 minutes charging his EV. He gets a 96 mile range out of the thing. It cost him 20 bucks. And that doesn't seem like much, but, you know, we're now down to the individual. So what is the economic case for this? If it was a gas engine that got maybe 25 miles a gallon, he'd gotten 135 miles out of it. He wouldn't have stopped for fuel for five gallons, by the way. He would have never even stopped there, but it would have taken him 90 seconds to get that gas. It's just not supportable. I, I really feel like the metrics of the economy are not going to suit the normal buyer. Think about it. Twenty min, twenty dollars for forty minutes. So he's wasted forty minutes of his life, and he got twenty bucks worth of mileage on his vehicle. That doesn't add up for my lifestyle. It's it's not the panacea. Yeah, no, you're right. You know, and, and it's funny. People, I, I will I will give 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 Tesla credit. You know, for making EVs cool, and we've given them credit here uh, on this podcast before. But you look at the failures. You've got. Uh, Rivian, which is going goofy, Lucid, the Tesla truck. I mean, when it what what happened? The five year old that drew that thing. What what happened? Did they go on to into third grade? <laughs> and we still don't have the truck. We've got the Lordstown truck, which let's just look at the Lordstown uh, equation for just a moment. I mean, that thing is on its on a very very rocky path right now. Bloomberg noted that Lordstown is maybe on the way out. It's down 31% the last two weeks. Steve Burns, the original founder of Lordstown, sold $59 million worth of stock before it stalled. He sold 5 million shares in January alone. Uh, he took $675 million in seed money and SPACs, and it's now valued at about $200 million. Uh, that is a wonderful way to set fire to $475 million. It's just not really working, and the failures are getting longer. You got Fisker, Aptera, Ferre, Dyson Motors, Nikola Motors. All those have failed, 
and it's not looking great. So back to the whole thing of why the EVs exist. Again, thank you, Tesla. And I mean that. No sarcasm. Thank you, Greta. Thank you, Greta. Well, you know, uh, what the, what you're talking about there, uh, Adams, and thank you for bringing up those those brands, which are no longer here because they failed. This is the reality. And this is what the Wall Street reported because they're all about stock price and that kind of thing. Since uh, Rivian IPO'd, their stock price is down 70%. They are now in their second rounds of layoff, second round of layoffs this year. In 2022, they lost $6.6 billion and they say that they're going to lose about $6 billion, $6 billion this year. This seems problematic. Let me just put one thing out to you. How about spending $6 billion on internal combustion engine technology and refining to make it cleaner? Okay. Because there's gas stations everywhere. How about that money into R&D? And internal combustion engines today are tremendous. I mean, remember when the original Honda CVCC engine came out, which I bought one in 1979, the exhaust that came out of my Honda in the era of coal producing plants across the country was cleaner than the air that went into it. Okay. People don't, younger people don't understand where we are today in terms of air quality. Today's engines are tremendously clean and this whole EV thing. Basically, if you can't afford a Rolex watch, you don't deserve and you cannot afford to own an EV. It is a luxury item. It's a Louis Vuitton bag. That's what they are. We're just the country. The world's not ready for them. The technology is not there. And now all the hype is gone. The, the Holland tulip bulb craze is gone. It's a fad. Eventually we will get there with technology where a battery can be made, designed at a cheap cost that has high capacity, but we're just not there with lithium. Yeah. I think that realistically, I really like that line. Because that's true. That's a good way to describe it. Uh, I've been trying to think of a way to actually say that it's a luxury item, without saying it's like it's a you know luxury item. You could you could argue a, a latte at Starbucks is a luxury item because most people just have regular coffee from the corner store or from home. So saying if you have a Rolex or can afford a Rolex, then a, a BEV is for you. I think that's a very good description. Uh, I do think it's the future, but I think it's going to take longer. I think hydrogen. And these e-fuels, you know, we've talked about Porsche making gasoline that you don't dig out of the ground. You actually make it using organic chemistry. E-fuels and hydrogen, they seem pretty good, don't you think, Adams? I do. I, I do. I support that. I like that. You know, when, when we've touched on the, uh, the the Porsche synthetic fuel uh, previously, I thought, wow, what, what an incredibly burgeoning enterprise that's going to turn out to be. And potentially the answer to the question of sustainable fuels. But what whatever happened to the... Um, uh, the, the hybrid. I thought the hybrid technology was a wonderful thing. You know, to, you can use your your EVs and your gas motor simultaneously. The gas motor is recharging your electric motor. It's like you're driving your own charging station. What's more convenient than that? Yeah, it, it, it makes sense to me. So uh, anyway, we have uh, once again made our point. And again, I, t I, I think we need to take a little bit of a victory lap here because both the Wall Street Journal and Automotive News are basically coming around and starting to report on these stories. I do want to want, make one more point about BVs and thing and cars is 
for those of you listeners that are a little bit scientific, driving a car is all about managing heat loss. So when you when you stop your car, you're creating friction on the brakes, friction on the tires on the road. When you hit the gas, you're converting gasoline, you're burning it, you're creating heat. So the long-term solution is how do we convert that heat that we generate through braking, through a combustible fuel, through our batteries, how do we conserve that heat and make it more of an entropic reaction rather than extropy? How do we manage that energy loss? And to me, that is more where we need to be focusing our dollars on research is managing heat loss in our automotive vehicles. It's kind of an outside concept, but people are talking about it. But I think that is in the future where we need to go is managing heat loss. Because think about it, you slam on the brakes. Think about all that energy lost through the production of heat. How do we keep that through some form of capacitor or something? And for me, the long term, this idea that the battery is the savior, it is not because the battery is not recovering that heat loss. You know, Stefan, that's an incredible point, but I, I think every single person who's listening to this and everybody who's a car person has read somewhere and understood that the engine is nothing more than a heat pump. It and is, that's what absolutely. It does. Yeah, that, that, that's what it does in its most simplistic form. And, you know, we, we, we love that that EVs have sort of come out of, the, out, out of the very fringe element and sort of, you know, offbeat sort of answer to a question that no one asked. And now they're a bit more mainstream. And they're fast. You know, there was a lot of things that, you know, us as performance heads, we used to talk about, oh, well, the EVs are the ones that are lagging behind, you know, the traffic. Well, now they're fast. But aside from all the quickness and the zero to 60 times and what they can do silently, I believe uh, paying homage to how we started this podcast, we are now seeing the dark side of the Zoom. Well, <laughs> yeah, Exactly. <laughs> It's all about the postcoital view because you know EVs are good for one thing. Bam, slam, thank you, ma'am. That's all they can do. Zero to sixty, and it's over. And then you just kind of look around, smiling, smoke a cigarette. Yeah. Anyway, we're out of time. We're out of time. But let me just uh, summarize by saying there's more work to be done. Uh, this is going to take a long time. There's a lot of technology hurdles that have to be overcome. Adams, you're absolutely right getting the cobalt, getting some of these uh, other trace metals is going to be really, really challenging. And I think they want, I, I think given that, by the way, given what you're talking about in the Congo, Adams, they need to really perfect and have worked out the whole idea of recycling batteries. Because once you can recycle them, then you're okay. But they're not there yet. They can't really recycle those elements yet. At least it's very, very difficult and energy intense. So um, anyway... Let's move on. And actually, no, we're not moving on. We're, we're, we're out of time, dude. <laughs> we're ending. So it's fun. Close we got to go listen second. to Pink Floyd. <laughs> Dark side of the moon. No, we got to go snow skiing. I'm out here to Sun Valley. You know, this is business meeting, but we get, we're going to discuss monetization. But hey, we had a good time. Uh, Stefan, you have to say subscribe and like. Oh, there we go. <laughs> All right. So hey, like, subscribe, listen. Hey. When I do have my sales on my woodworking shop, I put a little card in from Cars on Call and one of my wood bowtie purchasers said he likes the show. So, hey, subscribers, tell all your friends, like, listen, subscribe, and we'll talk to you next week.